Hello everybody and welcome to this latest edition of Ofsted Talks, the Ofsted podcast. My name's Chris Jones and I'm here with Anna Trithui. Hi Anna. Hiya, nice to be here. And uh, a special podcast today because not only are we going through the Ofsted mailbag uh, and answering some of your questions, it's Anna's last edition of the podcast and so we're saying goodbye and thank you to Anna for all her work on uh, the podcast episodes that we've recorded up to now and Anna why don't you tell us a bit about what you're doing next. Yeah sure so I'm heading over to a multi-academy trust I'm going to be head of change management over there um, it's been a delight to be at Ofsted it's been a delight to do these podcasts too Chris not least because I get to chat to you but also just the variety of experts and the breadth of our work has been, been really interesting to dive in more to. Um, but should we get cracking? We've got a good few questions here from our listeners. Why don't you fire some questions up? I actually am. So I get the luxury of asking the questions in this podcast and uh, and unpicking where I'm not quite clear on things, which is quite often what some of our inspectors do. So let's hear more about this. So the first question is, what actually is curriculum intent? Uh, this is a good question because I think there are some misconceptions around curriculum intent. Curriculum intent is simply the curriculum you intend to deliver. So it's what's written on your curriculum map or in your schemes of work or your lesson plans. Uh, something like a vision statement or an ambition. You know, lots of schools I see have you know, the ambition to teach the best that's thought and said or to create a love of learning or whatever their version of that is. Those things can all serve an important purpose, but they're not really what we mean by curriculum intent which is simply, what do you intend to teach? Why have you chosen those things? Why have you put them in, them in that order? And intent's obviously just one aspect of how we look at quality of education. So the other aspects are around implementation and impact. So implementation simply is the curriculum being taught as intended. How is assessment used to identify the gaps in learning? And how is the curriculum adapted in the classroom in order to close those gaps? So how is the intent of the curriculum implemented in the classroom? And finally, impact. So are the children learning what you intended them to learn? Can we see that, say, in standardised test scores? Can we see it in evidence? Can we see evidence of it when we look at children's books or talk to them? Those are the kind of questions that inspectors will be asking themselves. And I think it's also important to say that none of these elements will be judged in isolation. Um, we look at intent, implementation and impact for several subjects in each school and inspectors consider the totality of that when they decide on a grade for the quality of education. They consider what's consistent and systematic across the school and certainly not, for example, marking anyone down because you know, a group of children couldn't remember a key fact from their history lessons or anything like that. I think that's a really important one to um, to just outline to stop some, some of the scare stories out there. Um, so you've just at the end there started to describe some of our deep dives. What exactly is a deep dive? What happens during one? So the deep dive is the method inspectors use to gather the evidence they need around intent implementation and impact within a curriculum subject. So it involves talking to the subject lead, observing several lessons, often going with the subject lead to do that, talking to the teachers of that subject, looking at children's work, uh, including those children who are lower attaining or have special educational needs, um, talking to the children. Again, often this is with a focus on the lower attainers so we can understand 
uh, the provision that's been given to them. And where appropriate, that will also include looking at the standardised test results as well. The inspector gathers all this evidence and then they triangulate, which is a complicated word, but basically means comparing evidence against other evidence to build up a consistent and fuller picture. And in fact, it might mean discounting some evidence because it isn't supported by anything else the inspector has seen. And only by completing all these activities will an inspector have enough evidence to build that full picture of the school's strengths and weaknesses in each subject. And that process might take an inspector a full day to carry out. It's a pretty rigorous process that kind of looks at it from all angles, isn't it? Exactly. Jigsaw puzzle. So I heard Amanda mention this just recently again, and we've said it all the way along the line, which is Moxteads and consultants, you know, pretty pretty much aren't a great use of money. Why, why do we think that and why do we need to keep saying it? So in general, we think that schools are better served when it comes to their real live inspection by working on their curriculum and teaching rather than paying someone to essentially pretend to be an inspector. We all know that time for CPD and money for CPD is really limited. And in our view, giving, say, the English department a day together to review their curriculum or sending a year four teacher on a course to build their science knowledge, we think those things serve the children in the school far better than a Moxstead. And we'd expect those things to also contribute really positively to an inspection outcome. Great. And, you know, and even in a way that a leadership team might go and see outstanding practice elsewhere and bring it yeah. back in. Yeah. Um, so another person, sorry, I'm just hitting you with all these. That's questions. fine. Keep them coming. <laughs> um, the next question is, that, and we hear this quite a lot, we've done some blogs about it to alleviate concerns, but someone here has asked, I work in a small school. How would the inspection reflect our context? So you're right. We, we do get this a lot. And it's important to say, I think, that inspectors do understand the challenges small schools are facing. You know, many of our inspectors will have worked in small schools themselves. Uh, many will be working in small schools currently because of we draw upon you know, people who are, are serving in the sector. And they understand that leadership in a small school means balancing a huge number of different roles. And we're no less ambitious, I don't think anyone is any less ambitious for what pupils in those schools can achieve. But of course, smaller schools may have got to those outcomes by different routes and we're clear in the inspection framework that bringing in a curriculum off the shelf can be just as good as designing it yourself. We also know that schools with challenges such as teaching multiple year groups in each class, they have to think hard about how to plan their curriculum in any case, whether it's an offset requirement or not. And actually these schools should should naturally be well prepared when it comes to an inspection because of that thinking. I'm just going to put a, um, a shout out there to some other schools. You're quite right. They've got to think really hard. You know, if you're teaching a year five and six class together, you constantly have to reflect and update. You can't rely on doing the same thing each year. Um, so actually, I think it's a hats off to those people doing some really sterling work. Absolutely. Um, if we're looking to you know, speak to a particular teacher in a subject in a small school and they're not available, what's the best thing to do? So uh, there are really practical challenges when it comes to inspecting small schools. Uh, as I said, a number of staff members uh, in smaller schools have lots of different roles. So the head teacher may also be the DSL. They may also have responsibility for curriculum subjects. 
um, and of course they do the day-to-day -day running of, of the school. So the inspectors know that they have to work with the school to plan the inspection really carefully. So for example, they'll minimise the amount of time one particular teacher might have to spend outside of class because of course that means someone else has to has to cover for them. And the number of deep dives we'd carry out in a smaller school would typically be fewer than in a larger school. And this kind of practical consideration also extends to you know, key members of staff who are not present at the inspection for whatever reason that that might be. And that would certainly could impact which subjects are chosen for for a deep dive. Part of the part of the initial conversation between head teacher and inspector is working out some of these practical challenges and we're particularly alive to that in smaller schools. So obviously COVID's had a huge impact. We know that we don't need to kind of rehearse all, all the reasons why, um, but but inspectors are carefully considering that impact. Uh, it, it would always form part of one of the initial conversations with leaders. Uh, inspectors will listen to leaders' accounts of how the pandemic has impacted them, has impacted their staff, has impacted uh, the teaching and pupils learning in, in their school. And we shouldn't forget that you know, we have had inspectors in schools since September 2020, which you know, from the vantage point of uh, April 2022 feels really close to the start of the pandemic. It wasn't actually long that we had inspectors not in schools at all. So those inspectors have, have visited many schools uh, in the time since then, whether that's been through research visits, monitoring visits, or more recently doing the full suite of inspections again. And of course, as I said earlier, many are serving school leaders and they understand all too well the impact the pandemic has had. And the inspection outcomes for this academic year are strong, actually, and more schools than previously are improving their grade to good. And this, I hope, gives us all some reassurance that inspectors are taking that impact into account and certainly are not marking schools down because of the COVID impact. A linked question and one that I think we've, we've had a few ramblings about. So how will Ofsted use the data from SATs and GCSEs on inspection? So at the moment, we don't have up-to-date data from standardised tests. Yes. The last time standardised tests were done, as we all know, uh, in the normal way was back in 2019. So actually at the moment, very little is being made of SATs and GCSE scores on inspection. Um, but it is true to say that from next year, we'll have access to the performance data from the exams taking place in summer 2022. Uh, we know, of course, as everyone does, that the pandemic hasn't affected everybody equally. That some schools will have had more days where they've had to close than others have. Some will have had fewer children who can properly access remote learning, whether that's because of IT kit or not having somewhere quiet to work at home or not having internet access or, or whatever uh, the cause of that is. And of course, some schools have been disrupted by incredibly tragic events over the last few years, whether that's uh, among staff or students. So the impact has been uneven and uh, inspectors will therefore, when they have access to performance data from this year, will be really sensitive in their, in their use of that data. So inspectors will know that the 2022 exam data is not comparable really with er earlier years. Um, they won't be looking at the kind of 2019 to 2022 trend because that won't be uh, that won't won't make huge amount of sense. Um, and of course, they'll be uh, they'll be aware of the uneven 
impact of the pandemic on pupils and schools. So like this year, exam results will play less of uh, a role in uh, judgments made about schools next year as well. And, and, and of course, we know that data is only ever kind of one input among many into inspections. I've described the deep dive process, which can touch on data uh, when, when that's kind of external and, and standardised, um, but involves so much more than that as well. Yeah, and I think it's so, yeah, you put me at the post there. It's, it's part of the wider picture, isn't it? It informs the questions that inspectors want to ask. But of course, it's only part of the story that comes out through or through that professional dialogue and inspection. Um, so a similar question around attendance data, how, how will we be using that? So I, I, in the same way as the exam data, uh, in all honesty, and with, with sensitivity and, and with care, I think you know, no inspector is approaching an inspection looking to catch a school out, whether that's on attendance data or exam data or, or anything else. They, they understand um, what's happened over the last two years and, and they are doing and they will continue to, to treat that carefully. Um, so some schools have needed to alter their curriculum plans um, due to the pandemic. Will that be taken into account as well? Yeah, absolutely. So um, people will remember that when we launched the education inspection framework back in 2019, we included what we called transition statements, which recognised at that time that some schools would be developing their curriculum and it wouldn't necessarily be having the impact that uh, they might have hoped yet. So we said in the inspection handbook that if those curriculum plans look good and were on track to be delivered, essentially that was okay by us um, and we would we would take that into account. And after the pandemic, the same principle applies. Schools, many schools are replanning and redesigning their curriculum to address the gaps in learning that are resulting from the pandemic or, or in fact for other for other reasons. Um, many schools will have been planning and replanning. And so those transition statements remain in the handbook, although serving a slightly different purpose now. So if schools are in that process of, of planning their curriculum or replanning their curriculum, they do still have uh, the, the protection, if you like, from those transition statements, which says if your plans are, are in place, they look good, they're on track to be delivered, then that's that's okay. Yeah, and I don't think any of us imagined that we'd be using the transition statements for such a purpose when they were exactly yeah. Um, so, question about special schools: uh, Will will inspectors consider the impact on special schools as these have had to operate under different parameters to mainstream schools? Absolutely. So, in, the inspector leading every inspection will want to understand the impact of the pandemic on the school, no matter what type of school it is. And of course, we know that special schools have had more restrictions than others. At times, this has meant that they haven't had the ability to take children and young people into the community, for example, to get some of the skills they might need to move towards living independently. Uh, other children will have had severely curtailed access to services like speech and language therapy. So we, we understand all that. In fact, we've, we've published various bits of, of research and analysis that, that describes this. So, so inspectors know that. But we also know of special schools that are doing fantastic work to get these aspects back up and running. And we want to be able to you know, sing their praises and, and report on all the good things that are happening as well. That's right. So last COVID question, and actually last, COVID, uh, last question overall for the podcast, will the inspections look at how staff and students' mental health is supported following the COVID-19 outbreak? Yeah, I think we all know that mental health, both children and adults, uh, is 
it, it is a really important part of the post-pandemic landscape uh, and as part of the personal development judgment on an inspection inspectors will absolutely look to understand how schools are supporting pupils mental health and we also know that often that will be best done through giving them as normal a school experience as possible with good structures good routines well-behaved peers um, and of course sometimes there'll be specific issues that need a school-wide response such as misuse of social media uh, and, and inspectors will ask pupils and teachers about these issues it will remain a big focus um, of, of the personal development judgment. Um, we've seen some of the impacts on physical health as well, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, we'll be really keen to understand how schools are getting back up to the full range of PE and extracurricular sports and all the kind of thing that really things that really have an impact on on the physical health, which yeah, as we all know can can quickly translate into into more positive mental health as well. And I, and I just want to mention the the leadership and management judgment as well because of course that concerns how well leaders are doing for their staff so we talk to staff about the support they get with workload for example uh, and if either pupils or staff are concerned that their welfare is not being supported they would be able to tell an inspector in confidence and whilst inspectors can't investigate an individual incident they would certainly look to understand whether this was more widespread so I think yeah, more, more important than ever, as we all know, that inspections focus on these issues as well as the core academic. And something that we also heard on those early research visits was about how lonely it can be as a leader, particularly during the pandemic. Um, so how will we talk to uh, how we kind of look to that issue on inspection? And that's absolutely right. Anna. And we know from various bits of uh, data and survey work that we've done and that others like TeacherTap have mm -hmm. done that the burden of the pandemic has really fallen on leadership in schools. So, you know, we will talk to governors and trustees on an inspection. And one of the things we might well ask them is, is how they're supporting the leadership in the school um, to deal with all the challenges that remain uh, kind of as we emerge from the pandemic. Great. OK, thank you. Well, those are all the questions I was going to grill you with. Well done to those of you who carry on listening, because now you've made it to the clarification part. Um, so there's a few kind of Ofsted does, Ofsted doesn't pieces that waft around in the ether. This is a chance to bust some of those myths. Chris, do you want to just give a bit of a rundown of some of the things that we commonly hear as misconceptions? Sure. And, you know, we can never do too much uh, myth busting. Um, and these are all things that are, are in the school inspection handbook. Yep. So please do look them up there and, and use that as a tool if if you need. But I'll just pick out some of the, the ones that I think it's important to, to get across. So there are some things that Ofsted will not do, that we've committed not to doing. So we're not grade individual lessons. Um, we won't advocate a particular method of planning or lesson planning. We won't advocate a particular method of teaching or assessment because, of course, it's up to schools to determine their practices and it's up to inspectors and leadership teams to have a conversation on inspection uh, about those and the merits of the things that they have chosen to do. So we will not advocate uh, a particular method uh, of planning, teaching or assessment. And there are things that we certainly don't require schools to provide. And it's important to say this because we do hear repeatedly that you know, Ofsted has demanded this, that or the other. And, and it, it, in most cases, that's not the case. So Ofsted doesn't require schools to provide uh, evidence in any specific format 
you know, all that we need is for you to be able to explain it to an inspector. Uh, it doesn't need to be in a specific format. And that includes curriculum planning as well. Curriculum planning doesn't need to be in any specific format. We don't need any evidence for inspection beyond what's in the handbook and the types of things that I've described today. Um, we don't need a written record of teachers oral feedback to pupils. We know that you know, whole class verbal feedback can be an extremely effective method of providing feedback to pupils. You don't need to write down for Ofsted that that's what you've done. Uh, we're not going to ask for individual lesson plans. We're not going to ask for predictions of attainment and progress scores, and we're not going to ask for performance or pupil tracking information. We've done away with any requirement, uh, as you know, to to, to look at uh, school's internal data. And, and finally, there are some things that we, we're not kind of looking to specify, so we don't specify how planning, including curriculum and lesson planning, should be set out, uh, the length of time it should take to do that, or the amount of detail it should contain. Uh, we don't specify the frequency type or volume of marking and feedback, and we don't specify the content or approach to head teacher and staff performance management. Those are just some of the edited highlights from the myth busting. As I said, you can see all that in the school inspection handbook and more. It's good to raise it because sometimes it, it helps us set out you know, exactly this, what we do and don't do. Great. Well, I think that's everything, Chris. Thank you for letting me grill you thoroughly. Thank you to listeners out there. Obviously, if there are more questions, please do get them in. But for now, I'll say thanks very much, Chris. Thanks very much, Anna, and good luck. Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks.